It was 8 p.m. on the evening of June 17, 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina. A historic black church by the name of Emmanuel AME, which is African Methodist Episcopal Church, was gathering together for the regular Wednesday evening Bible study. A man named Dylan Roof entered the church building and was warmly welcomed by all those present. For the next hour, this group of people engaged in studying God's word and had a dialogue around what the scriptures were teaching. At 9.05, during the closing prayer, Dylan began wreaking havoc on this party and revealed himself to be the white supremacist murderer. While also yelling racial slurs, he goes about saying, and I quote, y'all want something to pray about? I'll give you something to pray about. He also says, I have to do it. You rape our women. You're taking over our country and you have to go. In middle of yelling all this, Dylan begins shooting those presents, leaving nine innocent victims in his wake. Imagine being a family member of one of the victims present. You have an opportunity to speak your mind to the person who killed your relative in cold blood solely because of the color of their skin. What would you say? Shocking both the hearers present and the watching world, the family members did not respond in hate or spite. Myra Thompson, sister of DePayne Middleton doctor, one of the victims, said, and I quote, I acknowledge that I am very angry, but one thing that DePayne always enjoined in our family is that she taught me that we are a family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have room to forgive. I pray God on your soul. Nadine Collier, the daughter of seven-year-old Ethel Lance, said this, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. How could family members of people who were massacred because of their race speak so graciously to someone who was so hateful towards them? As a culture, this enraptured us. People were talking about this. This stood out as significant in our day because this is so countercultural to the way in which humanity typically goes. But this, while it is absolutely magnificent, is not unique because this comes in the long Christian tradition based on the text that we have today. This, this dates back to Paul who said in Romans 12, 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not 
be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Stephen, who was uh, uh, the replacement apostle for Judas, in after he speaks to those in power, speaking the truth of Jesus and calling them out, says this, in, uh, this happens in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. And falling to his knees after being stoned to death, or in the middle of that, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. All of these cases, and there's many, many cases throughout history, and even uh, recent history, with the Amish community who did something very similar in recent years. All of this are stories that are built on the foundation, which is the life and teachings of Jesus. This idea is not something that naturally births out of humanity. This idea of loving your enemies is found in the teachings and the person of Jesus. And we find that in our text today. We're in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, as you just read. And we're going to read that again in a moment. But where this is all about is as children of God and representatives of his kingdom, we are called to a flourishing life that loves those who hates us. And this reveals the very nature of God. We're called to love our enemies. So, what does it say in Matthew 5, 43-48? This is what it says. As you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. During our time, we're going to be asking three questions. The first question is going to be, who is my enemy? We're going to deal with this in the first part and then have some dialogue. And in the second part, we're going to ask two more questions. What does it mean to love them? And what does it mean to be perfect? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. As we've been in the middle of the series and as I look at my Bible, we have been on this one page for quite a while. Understanding what it means to live a life that is flourishing in your kingdom. That you designed the world to be a specific way. That this sermon that you gave is a vision for human flourishing. This is how life works best. This is the good life And so, God, as we, your people, and those friends that are watching that I'm praying become your people, God, I pray that you empower me in this moment to speak your truth, and I empower, and I pray that you empower and open our hearts and ears to speak to us today. 
We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first question we're asking today is, who is my enemy? Just like when Jesus says, the greatest commandments is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody asked the question, who is my neighbor? And so if we are to love our enemy, I want you to ask yourself the question, and we're going to ask the question in the text, who is our enemy? Now for Jesus and his listeners, this was very, very clear. It was the Roman Empire. This was the people that were in power over the Israelites and the Jewish people. That They had a significant power over them. And so what Jesus is, and his listeners, it was very clear. Now we live in a day when our enemies are not as clear as that. We don't have a collective enemy as the people of God. Yes, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities in the heavenlies. Like Ephesians says that. But this is not speaking of the spiritual dynamic as much as it is as about the personal, relational dynamic of what it means to be human in this world. Yes, we know that is happening. Yes, we know. But Jesus isn't telling us to love the demonic spiritual element. He's talking about loving those who disagree. So let me define enemy. Enemy is someone who is actively working towards your destruction and harm. Actively working towards your destruction and harm. Verse 45, he um, talks about those that are evil and those that are unjust. These are people that have different opinions that are outside of the people of God. So he's giving us a little bit more of an example. He's using in verse 44 the idea of those who persecute you. That we're called to pray for them. Now, while it's hard to collectively identify an enemy like it was for God's people at this time, it's, it's a little bit easier if you start thinking about the different areas of your life. I mean, you think about a coworker who's actively working against you to push you down so that they can be built up. If you're a student, think about that person that may bully or speak ill towards you or gossip about you. Those are people that are actively working towards your ill. So there's lots of different examples that we could start to tease out, but I want to um, focus on one aspect of this. And I want to focus on, just for a few moments, those that are ideological enemies. Ideological enemies. So in our culture, we are becoming more and more polarized. The trenches are being dug deeper. The the cracks in the foundation of what it means to be united in this moment is being exposed. And we're becoming more and more divided and entrenched. And in our division and because of social media, we can go into and only listen to people that we want to listen to. That's what what it means to have an echo chamber. I can choose to only listen to people that I want, that agree with me and have confirmation bias, which further entrenches us. This is what Scott Sauls said, a, a pastor and author. He says, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, and more rewarded than rejected. 
outrage at those that are ideologically opposed to us. Now, just because they're ideologically opposed doesn't make somebody an enemy. But I, I want to warn us as God's people, the way in which our world is heading more and more, there's a ditch ahead. And I want us to be aware and to bring about the kingdom in the midst of that. So let me give you a, a couple examples of ideological enemies and how we can engage them. So let me give you a few topics. The first one is COVID-19 and its response. How do you view someone who has a different opinion about the response to COVID? You may be the opinion that we need to open up everything right away. This is all a conspiracy theory. Or you may be somebody that says, no, we need to tighten it down. This is a serious thing. And we can't have any of that. Like, I don't know where you, where you stand on that. But whatever side, how do you view those that are different than you? Do you treat someone with a different um, perspective as um, ignorance? I, I, as a leader who's taken a position in our church that we're still doing digital liturgy, I have been called weak. I have said, been said shame on you. Uh, there's some things about um, being more masculine. Like, no, we need to, we're, we're bowing down. Like, like, well, first of all, like, are you listening? Like the, So you see how it's easy to throw stones at the other side. But what does it mean to love those whom you disagree with, who are opposed to what you think should happen? Another one, and I'm going to go there, politics. How do you relate with someone who is on the other side of the ideological political aisle? Do you view, do you internally judge them that assume that they're ignorant, assume that they're um, not well educated? Do you assume that they are not smart because they think differently than you do? And I'm just going to say it blankly. If you think that those who watch a different news channel than you do are the problem, that's not the way to go. But that uh, thinking itself is the problem. What we need, what is it we are we called to do? To love our enemies. Fox News and CNN and MSNBC are not the problem. People that watch them are not the problem. Can we discuss? Can we dialogue? Can we love those who are different than us? And the last one that's really taken um, a center stage in our political discourse, in our culture right now, is the idea of racial reconciliation. How are you engaging the conversation of racial reconciliation with those that are coming from a different place than you? Are you highlighting only the fringe or are we taking time to listen to what people are actually saying? Our, we have friends, and I'm going to just go here for a moment. We have friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are crying out in generational pain of what they're witnessing. This is nothing new for them. But you may disagree with a lot of that. But are we loving them and expressing our love by listening? Do we truly understand one another's perspective? 
Do you truly understand what people have and are experiencing? What does it mean to love our enemy? Well, the idea of loving our enemy is a completely foreign thing outside of the life and teachings of Jesus. The kingdom of God is not finding the middle ground. It's, it's a completely other way. And that other way is to love our neighbor, love our enemy, to pray for those who persecute us. So I'm going to pause for a few minutes and give you an opportunity to dialogue about what does it mean and to love our enemy and who your enemy is. And then we'll come back and answer the final questions. I want to welcome you back together. I hope that conversation about who is my enemy was very robust for you as and you probably had more to say than you were able to. So let's continue our time with asking the two remaining questions. What does it mean to love our enemy? And what does it mean to be perfect? So what does it mean to love our enemy? There's a few different clues about what that means that we can find in the text itself. The first one is found in verse 47. And, and Jesus is giving a, a few different examples. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What is he saying is there's something about greeting somebody. It's, he uses that as an example. Now, this isn't like a greeting, high five, hey, how you doing? This is, uh, the word actually means, it has a dynamic of welcoming into. It's not just saying a hello. This is about hospitality, welcoming them into your life. In the life of Jesus, this is about sharing meals with people. He went about eating with those who were vehemently against him. And in a culture where who you ate with is who you participated and identified with, Jesus ate with both the sinners and he ate with the righteous or the self-righteous, his enemies. And so when what does it mean to greet those or welcome those? It, it means that to love our enemies is to welcome into our lives those that are opposed to us. Now, there's boundaries. I'm not saying if you're, somebody's coming after you automatically say, hey, come on into my kitchen table. That's not what I'm suggesting. But there's a dynamic of welcoming them in, being hospitable towards those that are against you. Has the dynamic of speaking kindly to those who speak t- bitterly towards you. The second we find in verse 46, um, excuse me, 45, uh, in the nature of God, what does he do? He makes the sun rise on both the good and the evil, and he makes the rain come on the just and on the unjust. This is God's common grace. This is the idea of doing good to those who even hate you. You do good towards those people. People, this is benevolent actions instead of spiteful responses. God in his very nature, in his common grace, gives good to all people, even his enemies. He makes the sun rise. He, he allows the crops and for um, prosperity and for uh, food and all those things. Those are good things even for those who are against him. And so one aspect of loving our neighbor is to seek the good of, 
those that are in opposition to us. And in some ways, the pinnacle of this is this third one, and we find this in verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, we could go and say, oh, these are imprecatory prayers. These are prayers that like we want them to be spited. We want them to take them out. We read the Psalms like, God, get rid of them from the earth. But because Jesus is coupling this with love your enemies, this love, this agape love, and this praying for those, I believe has more to say like, no, pray blessings on them. Pray good for them. Work towards God and ask that God would bless those who are working towards your destruction. Ask for their good. Ask God. And in and in doing that, that changes our hearts as much as it changes God's mind. This is about the kingdom of God being an internal heart depth reality as much as it is an ethic that is lived out. So what does it mean to love our enemy? It's to welcome them, to greet them, to do good to them, to pray that God would bless them. I mean, think about how countercultural, how preposterous this sounds. This doesn't make any sense from so many people. Now, and I'm going to add the depth to why this doesn't make sense or how this doesn't make sense. Because then Jesus goes on to say in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what does it mean to be perfect? This is our third question. Are you telling me that in order for me to be a son of God, I have to live up to this? I mean, this is where people can take this and they build a legalistic framework around this passage. They couple be perfect with verse 45, where it says, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. So what does it mean, so that you may be? Is this saying that the entry exam to being a son of God is that you have to love your enemy? Is this saying that you have to earn your salvation? And if you don't love your enemy, if you don't um do the right things regarding retaliation and lust and oaths and murder and anger, the things that Jesus has built on in these six examples of how he is the fulfillment of the law. If you don't do these things perfectly, then you are not a child of God. Is that what this is saying? Now, let me unpack this for a second. When we think of the word perfection in the English, we tend to think of it as a moral quality. You doing exactly what you're supposed to do. But while the moral quality is definitely an aspect of this, because it's not just um, inward, it's also outward, the kingdom of God. Perfection tends to focus on the action quality. But the, the unpacking of this Greek word, I think, will be helpful. The Greek word in this is ateleos. In the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, teleos was um, interchangeable with the word shalom. And shalom is where we get the idea of peace, of fullness, of wholeness. And so 
when we think of teleos, when we think of perfection, Scott Pennington says, this is talking about wholehearted orientation toward God, to be single-minded in our devotion. This is, and I quote, not the rigor of sinlessness, but the rigor of utter devotion. This is similar to the idea of holiness, to be set apart from the world, to be dedicated to God. In essence, to be not teleos is to be a hypocrite. We will see this a lot in chapter 6 when he starts talking about the different ways in which the Pharisees are doing something and he wants us to do something different. But to be teleos is to be wholly devoted, singularly de- um, in mind and actions to God, that our actions line up with our heart and our mind, and that is found in the understanding of being whole, of shalom, of peace. So w- to be teleos is to not, to not be a hypocrite, to do what you say and to be whole, to have all of your being working in the direction that God desires and designs. So this is what Jesus is saying. You need to be whole as your Father in heaven is whole. Now, if we were to look at this as an entry exam, you and I know that we would fail. I don't love my enemy. I don't always seek the good for those that are against me. I I don't live out fully the moral qualities that God has designed in the world. I don't even do everything I feel and know that I'm supposed to do. And that's true of all people. Not just those that have the Bible as a foundation. If you're a friend of ours that doesn't, you yourself know that you don't even do the things that you have a standard for which should be done. That we're cracked, we're not whole. We're, that there's a broken quality of what it means to be human. And so if this text is saying you have to earn your salvation... If this text saying loving your enemy is the entrance exam, then you and I fail every single time. We don't do this. And that is why not only the teachings of Jesus is so important, but his very life, death, and resurrection as well. Because Jesus himself does the very thing that he's calling us to. What does it say? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were enemies of God by nature, children of wrath, Ephesians says. And what does God do? He sends his son because of his love for those that are his enemies. Those that are vehemently opposed to his work, God loves them. He sent Jesus to die for for you who are opposed to Jesus himself. What did Jesus himself say on the cross? 
Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're casting lots of his clothing. They're spitting on him. They're defiling him. They're putting him in uttermost shame. They're saying he's guilty for something he didn't do. And what does he say? Forgive them. He loves them. Jesus is the perfection of what it means to love our enemies. Because all of us in our sin and our rebellion against God, we're at one point or maybe right now enemies of God. And so Jesus came to live perfectly in our place, to die for our sins. While he was a son of God, he became an enemy of God by becoming sin itself so that you and I could become children of God. So is this saying you have to be perfect so that you can become a child? No. What this is saying is you can't live up to that standard. But now, because God and Jesus became an enemy so that you could become a child, this isn't earning salvation. This is an evidence of your sonship. Your love of neighbor doesn't make you a child. Your love of neighbor reveals that you are a child. Jesus accomplished that you could become children of God because of his life, death, and resurrection. By placing our faith in Jesus, we are saying we're aligning ourselves with him, that his death was in my place, that in his resurrection and ascension, he sent the spirit of God who now dwells in me and those of my brothers and sisters as Christ as the living temple. And I'm now empowered to live the way that God designs in his kingdom. I can't be loving my enemies apart from the spirit of God. My flesh does not want it. I need the spirit to empower me to do this work. And when I love my enemy, when I seek the good of those who are against me, I am they're expressing evidence of my sonship because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. So brothers and sisters, don't try to do this to earn God's love. God already loves you in Christ. My friends that don't yet believe and have your faith in Jesus, this isn't a call for you to go and start doing all this good moral stuff. No, this is a call for you to submit yourself to Jesus, for him to make you a child of God, for your sins to be forgiven, for your cracked um, being, yourself to be made whole in Christ as you're unified with him. And then as you're unified with him, empowered by him, you can live out what it means to be fully human. You and I cannot flourish. You and I cannot love our enemies. You and I cannot do this without the spirit of God. And Jesus, on their behalf, paid our penalty so that we could. So who is your enemy? By the power of the Spirit, what does it mean to love them this week in your life? And how do you live that out as a whole being made perfect by the blood of Jesus and revealing the evidence of God at work in your life? We need Jesus for this. Church family, that's why we did communion earlier. It's to remember that Jesus' life was perfectly lived, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. 
So this is an opportunity, an invitation for you and me to place our faith in him. He perfectly loved his enemies so that you and I could be empowered to show that to the world. And this is what it means to reflect the nature of God. This is revealing in our actions and our hearts what God is like. That God loves our enemies and he's using us to show the world that. So for my brothers and sisters in Christ, ask yourself the question, what does it mean to love your enemies this week? How can you do that in your missional community together? Are there people that are opposed to what you are up to? How do you love them together? How do you reflect the nature of God as his people in the midst of every day? And for those of you that don't yet believe Jesus, this is my invitation to you right now to say, I believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what earns my salvation, what pays the penalty for my sins, what makes me new, a new creation, what gives me a life that is actually flourishing. And so uh, let me pray for all these things that as you go about your week, you can, filled with God's Spirit, empowered by Him to love your enemy because Jesus Himself loved you when you were an enemy and now empowers you to do the same thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were enemies in our sin, you sent your son Jesus to die in our place, to live perfectly, to teach us what it means to be fully human in his kingdom, but also to to die in our place for our sins. I pray for my friends that don't yet believe, Father. I pray that this is an opportunity that your spirit is bringing them to life. Let them hear that Jesus paid the penalty of their sin. He is the perfect one so that we can be empowered to live the good life. Father, we need your help. Spirit, we need you to do the very things that Jesus is calling us to. So I pray that your spirit come upon your people that we're dependent upon you every moment of this week as we live out what you're calling us to, both as individual disciples, but disciples in community on your mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.